This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. Good morning, First Pres. This morning, our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and we will begin reading in verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you come my praise, comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And then our sermon passage for today is from Hebrews chapter 2. And we will, be begin, we will begin reading in verse 10. That will be Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Here we read. For it was fitting that he, for whom by whom all exists, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Good morning. Just ask you to keep your Bibles open there to Hebrews 
uh, chapter 2 and as we continue to work through uh, this book. But before we do, let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we gather here in your house and we gather under your word as you and you alone have authority for our lives. You are God, you are creator, you are sustainer, and to us we know you as redeemer. So Lord, we're thankful to be your church and to know the salvation that is gifted to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, our hearts are heavy as we look across this world and we see the atrocities in places like Israel. And God, we ask you to minister, to care, to watch over, Lord, the people who are suffering. We pray that our minds and our hearts would be, be focused in praying, Lord, for, for your glory, even in the midst of this atrocity. God, we pray for the families that have been affected, not only there, but even here in the States. And so, God, we ask you to go and to minister as you are perfect and good and loving. Lord, we know you to be such because that is the way in which you have displayed your marvelous grace to us. And so, God, as we gather in this place, we recognize that you are a God who can be turned to. You are a God who fights for his people. You are a God who is the Savior of your children. And so, God, we lean upon you this morning. We ask you, Lord, to strengthen us, to hold us up. And, Lord, we pray that through your word we would be changed, that we would be made more and more in the image of Christ, and that we would reflect his glory. We pray this now, Lord, and I ask, Lord, for my own voice, Lord, that I would not say more nor less than you've given me to say, but that I would be faithful to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. There's something special about rescue missions. And I'm not talking about the place where you go and serve a meal. I mean the actual going and rescuing. The Hollywood has seemed to capture on this. There's been many movies made about rescue. In fact, there was one such mission known as Argo to Hollywood, but was actually named before that the Lord of Light Mission. An event took place on November 4th, 1979, during the Carter administration. There was an uprising in Iran. Some 66 Americans were serving there in Iran, and they were taken as hostages. However, six U.S. diplomats uh, slipped away. They quickly found themselves in a very scary situation, hiding out in, hostile, in a hostile nation. The six hid in the residence of the Canadian diplomat's home for some 80-plus days awaiting rescue. Eventually, a rescue mission was planned. It was led by a CIA agent by the name of Tony Menendez. He and his partner would willingly put themselves in harm's way to rescue the six displaced diplomats. Using a bit of creativity that was inspired, actually, believe it or not, by the TV show Planet of the Apes, they put a plan in place. The plan was to arrive in the hostile country under the guise as a Canadian movie company that was looking for possible sites for their next space film. The plan was to smuggle all six diplomats out as they portrayed being part of this fake movie. The mission was a success. All six were able to board and fly 
on you and the Swiss airlines and eventually arrive safe at home. It's a picture of rescue. But that's not the only one. There was one entitled Unstoppable. Unstoppable is the story of a, uh, an unstoppable train actually called the Crazy Eights. On May 15, 2001, an unmanned train, CSX Locomotive 8888, which later was nicknamed the Crazy Eights, with 47 cars left Stanley Rail Yard in Wahlberg, Ohio. It took off on a 66-mile un, unmanned ride. For prior to exiting the slow-moving train to fix the switch, the engineer made a mistake with the braking system, which left the engine under power. The train, carrying thousands of gallons of harmful chemical in two of its cars, took off and reached speeds as high as 50 miles an hour. For a little over two hours, the runaway train rolled through northern Ohio, before another train, manned by Jesse Nolanton and Terry Forsen, was deployed to catch up to the unmanned train. Nolton and Forsen were able to use their locomotive to reach the runaway train and slow it down to 11 miles an hour by hitting the brakes repeatedly, eventually allowing CSX train master John Holsfield to climb aboard the train and stop it. These are two powerful stories that actually took place. And in both these stories, Hollywood grabbed them because they said, people love rescue missions. People love the story of a great rescue. But in both of these stories, people were willing to put themselves in harm's way to rescue other people. This morning, you're saying, what does this have to do with the book of Hebrews? Everything. See, this morning's text is especially focused on the superiority of Christ in his work of rescue, in his work of salvation. These amazing stories, as amazing as they are, the, the story of getting those hostages, those, those people out of Iran, and the amazing story of stopping the unstoppable train, as amazing as those stories are, they're nothing compared the superiority of Christ in his work of saving his people. As we watch Hollywood movies, as we read books, as we see events unfold in our news screen that make us go, wow, how much more should we be in awe of the salvation that Christ provides? See, that's the point that the writer of Hebrew would be directing us. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that God had a plan and that plan was to send the perfect deliverer, who he calls the pioneer of our salvation. This individual would be our own brother, and he would go to our rescue. What's interesting is regarding the heavenly purpose of the mission of salvation, Dr. F.F. F. Bruce points out, there are many who are ready to tell us confidently what would or would not be worthy of God what God should do and what God shouldn't do. But the fact remains that the only way, he goes on to say, to truly discover what is worthy for God to do is to consider what God has in fact done. See, that's an important point. We can sit around all day and talk about are there other ways for God to work in the situations that we face. But Dr. F.F. F. Bruce says, no, look at what God has done. 
as this is done for his glory and our good. See, that's the important point, isn't it? Everything God does is for his glory and our good. Look at verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says this very point, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's a reference to God's glory. For whom and by whom all things exist. It was fitting for this individual in bringing many sons to glory. That's the reference to what God did to rescue us, our salvation. That he should make the founder or the pioneer of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, as we read that, we wonder, what what is it really saying? Well, there are three major points that are stated in this one verse. Number one, all that is done is done for God's glory. Number two, God brings salvation to his sons, to his children. This is absolutely amazing. He brings many sons to glory. Number three, the founder or pioneer of our salvation would suffer in finishing his work. That's what the perfection means. In finishing, in completing his work, he would suffer. See, this one whom God would send would suffer to rescue us. This one whom God would send would put himself in harm's way to rescue us. And yet, who is this one? God. The one in whom all things are made for the one in whom is to receive all glory. This is the one who went on mission to bring many sons to glory. And this was God's mission. Now, as you remember from last week, we talked about man was the crown of God's creation. We talked about last week that man was to have dominion over all creation. But we stressed the fact that man lost everything in the fall. So here's the point. Rather than ruling the earth, man was now ruled by sin. And God didn't abandon him. No, God actually sent his very own son on a rescue mission to save him. See, God had a rescue plan. I want you to think about that for a moment. God had a rescue plan, a plan determined before time. What some call the covenant of redemption, a plan that the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would fulfill in bringing many sons to glory. Don't miss that this morning. This plan was, in fact, a rescue of family members. This plan was a family matter. That's what this rescue was about. See, this plan included family. Verse 11 draws us to this. Look what it says. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That source, of course, is a divine source. It continues. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. See, the family trait, the bond between them was holiness. When God created Adam in the garden, he created him in holiness. But in his disobedience, sin entered the world. And now Adam was unholy with all of his children. But God in his plan was to rescue him. That he would make him holy once again. And how would he do this? By sending himself, 
his own son, the pioneer of our salvation, who would come and bring us back into the family. This is the greatest story ever told. This story tells us the superiority of Christ as it pictures for us our adoption back into the family. See, that's in fact what this text is really pushing is the doctrine of adoption. Now, the doctrine of adoption isn't something that we think about a whole lot. In fact, if we're honest, we think more about the doctrine of justification, that I was a sinner and now I'm justified because of the cross. My sins have been washed away. And yet the scriptures teach repeatedly the adoption into the family of God. See, God's plan was not simply to free us from our stains and our bondage of sin. No, God's plan was to bring us back into his family. He did not simply save us, but he planned to adopt us. It's an important point that Dr. Gershner brings up. See, we need to understand we are not, in fact, orphans, but in first, we were truly residing in another household, an abusive household, with our father, the devil, as Jesus says in John 8, 44. But God didn't ignore us. No, he stepped in to rescue us out of love. He sent his son to die for us. But he didn't just simply save us and walk away. No, he adopted us into his house. What a beautiful picture of the depths of God's love for us. The Shorter Catechism, our own confessional standard, defines adoption this way. It says adoption is an act of God's free grace. God didn't have to adopt us. He chose to adopt us. And by doing this, we are received into the number, it says. And we have all the rights and all the privileges as the sons of God. Everything that a rightful son would have in the Old Testament picture as the firstborn is now ours in Christ. John writes about this in 1 John 3, 1, when he says, See what kind of love the Father has given us. See, watch, marvel at what kind of love God has for us that we should be called the children of God. Then he ends with this, and so we are. And so we are because of the rescue plan, because of the depths of love that are found in this plan of rescue. See, the goal of God's plan was to bring us to glory. That's what verse 10 says of Hebrews 2, to bring many sons to glory, to restore the glory that was lost. This includes holiness, of which 11 speaks, but it also includes other rights and privileges that have been granted to us as the children of God. Again, our salvation is not just a judicial decree. It's not just a courtroom description of our justification. No, this is in fact relational. This is a relational matter, a family matter, for which God would send his very own son to rescue us. What a beautiful picture of God's love for his people. See, the glories of heaven are ours in Christ. Yet the truth of the matter is, far too often, we long for the things of the world. Amen? Dr. Russell Moore adopted two children from outside the United States. He stated that after he had filled out all the paperwork and signed every line, 
he now had the opportunity to pick his children up. He did so. They were little. He was picking them up. He was celebratory over the fact that he was able to adopt these two little children. And as he was carrying them away, he said that he was carrying them out and his sons were clinging to the orphanage. They were clinging to the orphanage. They were crying for that rat hole as he describes it. These sons of mine did not understand the life of love and plenty that awaited them. He goes on to say, the truth is, that's us. The truth is, that's us. We cling to the rat hole of this life. We are more passionate about the filth of this world than we are of the glories of God. And friends, that is wrong. Because God sent his son on a rescue mission for us. Exactly what does this mean? This rescue mission. How, what are the depths and steps of this rescue? See, the writer of Hebrews would want our eyes to be fixed upon it. Again, I flash you back to Hebrews 2.10 where it says, that the plan of God in bringing salvation was this, to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He would finish his work. He would complete his work by suffering. See, the point of the fact is Christ, the pioneer, the founder of our salvation, made our salvation complete by his suffering, the depths that he went to save us so that we would receive the glory that is ours. Church, understand the suffering and humiliation of Christ is serious. It's summarized again in our shorter catechism, question 27. Listen to the way it defines Christ's humiliation. It says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. Think about it, God taking on human flesh. And that he was born in a low condition. He wasn't born to a rich family. He was born to the poorest of poor. Not only this, the God who made the law was made under the law. He underwent the miseries of this life, getting tired and hungry, putting up with vile people. He experienced the wrath of God. The cursed death on the cross, being buried and continuing under death, the power of death for a time. I think the writers of our confession capture it well when we think about the suffering of our Lord on our behalf. Because of his great love, he was willing to endure for us. Church, hear this. Jesus was willing to suffer for us. He was willing to identify with us. That's the point verses 12 through 18 make. His identity with us. See, in the Old Testament, there were three offices. The office of prophet, priest, and king. And you read about them as you read through the Old Testament. And yet we understand that Christ fulfills all three offices perfectly. Yet did you know that the office of priest is really the only one that truly identifies with the people? The office of priest is the one in which they are the representatives of people, God's people, before the Holy One. Our passage keys us in on this as it quotes from two Old Testament texts in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, we see him quoting Psalm 22, verse 22. And this is what it says, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. 
Church, understand, this is a reference to how the high priest would lead the children of God, his own brothers, into worship. See, the worship gathering for us is really a family reunion. Think about it that way. We gather once a week as the family of God to worship God. And the priest in the Old Testament would lead the congregation, his brothers and sisters, in song of praise to God. And that's exactly the picture here we're given of this high priest that Jesus is identified with. But in verse 13, we now quote from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. And understand the context of Isaiah 8, you need to understand it's talking about the Messiah, the promised one. Listen to what it says. I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is a picture or reference of how the Messiah sits with us, pointing us to the hope of God, even in the face of danger. Church, the Messiah would suffer. According to Isaiah later, he would be known as the suffering servant. His face would be beaten beyond recognition. And he would suffer for what purpose? But to rescue. As the writer of Hebrews grabs these two pictures, he's picturing the brotherhood, the identification with the people of God. His point in willing to suffer so that he can lead us to the glory of God. See, these two passages show us Christ, the promised one, as he identifies with us. The writer of Hebrews then goes on to unpack this identification. The idea here is the idea of the incarnation. The incarnation is the theme of Christmas. Every Christmas we celebrate that God took on human flesh in the form of a baby. We celebrate that because it's life-changing. That God entered into this world for what purpose? To save us. You see this is in verses 14 and 15. He goes on to say, Since therefore the children, God's adopted children, share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to the pioneer of their salvation, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And get this, according to verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He became like us. Flesh and blood. For what purpose? To deliver us. To deliver us. It is through the incarnation that God's son took on human flesh. It's through the incarnation that he suffered death on the cross to provide salvation for the children of God, the adopted children of God. It's through the incarnation that he delivers us from slavery of sin. But it doesn't stop there. The writer continues in verses 16 and 17. He says, For surely it was not angels that he came to help, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Notice that. Therefore, had he not been made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, it's through the incarnation that he identifies with us. He saves us. But note here, it's not the sons of Adam that he came to save. It's the sons of Abraham, those of faith 
Galatians 3.9 says, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We are, in fact, the children of Abraham. And because we're the children of Abraham by faith, we know that Christ came to save us. It's by this incarnation, according to verse 17, that he was made like his brothers in every respect. He didn't cease to be God. He was always God. One person, but two natures, 100% God and 100% man. And why did he do this? To become merciful. A merciful, faithful high priest who could stand in our place. See, by the incarnation, he was able to make propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? It means appeasement. It's the idea of payment to God. God's holiness was, was offended. It demands justice for sin. And Jesus willingly stood in our place. Jesus, the high priest, stood in our place as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we come to verse 18, where the writer yet continues to push on the incarnation. As he says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You want to know what you're delivered from? Yes, from sin and bondage. But even from the very temptation you face. See, Jesus was tempted in every way like us, and yet without sin. And because of his incarnation, he is able to help us in our temptation. He is the pioneer of our salvation. Even when we face the beginnings of temptation, victory is made possible. This is why the writer of Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13 when he says, No temptation is overtaking you. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Deliverance, salvation, Holiness are ours because of the incarnation, because of the rescue mission of our big brother. What a beautiful picture of God's love for us. On July 9th, 2020, news broke out of a story of a six-year-old by the name of Bridger Walker. Bridger Walker was the boy who saved his sister from a vicious dog attack. Many of you may remember sitting at home during 2020 and spending a lot of time on your accounts on Facebook and such and seeing the actual story line and the picture of this boy. Bridger was six years old when a dog charged his sister. Bridger stepped in in front of her and yelled for his sister to run. This attack left him needing 90 stitches on his face. The picture that is so glued into so many of our minds of this swollen little boy's face tells of the viciousness of this attack. When he was asked why he did this, he simply responded, If someone had to die, I thought it should be me. Friends, this is a picture of the love of Christ. A picture of the love that Christ has for us. And that he went to the cross that we deserve. That he was willing to take on human flesh. 
so that he could identify on our behalf. So I ask you, what is the appropriate response to such a great and marvelous rescue? Well, I think first of all, we see in verse 12 that our, that our Savior is singing praise. And it would be absolutely wrong if we did not sing praise with Him. The worship of God is mandatory in response to what He has done. That is why we gather. That is why we seek to honor His name. It is only right and good that we should sing along with our Savior. But it's also right and appropriate that because we who have been adopted and have received such grace, that we should show such grace to our brothers and sisters. It's only appropriate that he who was willing to be wronged on our behalf should be willing to take some of the wrong that we face in relationships. We need to care. We need to love. We need to pray. And we need to walk with one another. Church, we also need to rejoice in suffering. As verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It only seems right and good that when we suffer, rather than cursing God, we should actually rejoice in suffering. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering. Or how about James when he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that these testings of your faith produce steadfastness. And let the steadfastness that has its full effect, that you will be perfect and complete. And hear this, and you'll lack nothing. See, above everything, we should celebrate this great rescue. Hollywood attempts to celebrate great rescues. How much more? should the church celebrate the rescue of Christ. Church, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the lost son. In this story of the lost son, we have a younger brother who basically tells his father, hurry up and die. Give me my inheritance now. This younger brother wants to have his money now. Understand in that day and age, it wasn't like his dad had to go to the bank and just do a withdrawal or move a, an IRA. No, the father had to sell land and sell off livestock. It cost the family to give this young son his inheritance. And what did the young son do with it? Well, he wasted it. He wasted it on wild living, eventually finding himself so poor that there he was feeding pigs as a Jewish boy. He told himself as he finally came to his senses, even the servants in my father's house have it better than I. Practicing on the way home his plea for forgiveness, he never even needed to utter a word because as soon as his father saw him, his father ran to him. His father hugged him. His father welcomed him back by placing a ring on his finger, his best robe on his back, and shoes upon his feet. His father even killed the fatted calf in celebration of his return. However, the story is not complete. The older brother finally returned from the field 
And when he heard about the celebration, he said he would not enter. He would not join in. To the father, he said, I have been slaving for you all these years, and you've never done this for me. We're never told what happens to the older brother, although we're left wondering that he never joined in with the celebration. There's probably a family division. See, the older brother realized that by welcoming his younger brother in, his younger brother had already wasted his inheritance. Now he's going to waste mine. I'm here to tell you that this story that Jesus tells has an interesting twist because Jesus is our older brother and Jesus willingly shares what is his with us. Yes, we've wasted our inheritance. In Adam, all has been lost. But in Christ, all has been found. Are we celebrating Christ, our big brother? That's the question before us that the writer of Hebrews would have us consider. As the hymn writer says, Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. May that truly be our heart's cry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this section, this chapter of Hebrews, Lord, may we see truly the superiority of Christ in His work the depths at which he went, God himself taking human flesh, being identified with sinners so that we could share his inheritance. Lord, we marvel at this truth, not just from a justification standpoint, but a relational standpoint. That we are not foreigners or aliens. We are truly members of the family. We're thankful for the great doctrine of adoption. We're thankful for the great doctrine of the incarnation. And we're thankful for a Christ who is willing to come and identify with us. Lord, may we sing his praises. May we reverence those whom he has died for, the church, by loving one another well. And Lord, in all things, may we glorify you even in our suffering. We pray this now in Jesus' name. God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. 